All right, you guys are probably wondering, what is he doing with that? Okay, well, uh, a lot of you know, if you know me, you know I'm a coffee guy. I drink coffee from 5.25 in the morning till 10 at night, and I'm asleep at 10.01 usually. Um, and I got up here after, you know, the traffic that we all had, and uh, Neil, I, I ate on the way up, and Neil says, is there anything you need? And I said, coffee, coffee, coffee. So Neil... I said large coffee, so he gets me this, and this, and then this bag has enough Splenda in it to last me till Christmas, I think, and there's some, uh, a bunch of cream on there, but the best part was he brought it, or, or Aaron brought it up to my room in this, it's just, I just thought, wow, yeah, that's, I'm in the right place, and I have my coffee. All right, well, um, some of you uh, I, I know uh, from uh, previous retreats, um, and I had a milestone this year. I turned 55 years old. Well, I actually turned 55 years old 10 years ago, <laughs> but um, I'm still kind of dreaming of the past. But you know, when you're 65, it has some advantages that you, you know, normally don't think of. For example... Kidnappers are not very interested in you anymore. <laughs> One worry is check off. Number two, nobody expects you to run anywhere. <laughs> Number three, there's nothing left to learn the hard way, I hope. Number four, you quit trying to hold your stomach in no matter who walks in that door. I've given up on that. And number five, your supply of brain cells has finally diminished to a, a manageable amount, which is kind of where I am today. All right. Uh, we are talking about identity this weekend. Uh, and identity uh, is, is a fascinating concept because uh, identity is really, uh, it's complex. Um, it, it's more than just we have one identity. A lot of us have multiple identities that we just sort of morph into depending on where we are and who we're around. Um, some of these identities we're aware of, we're conscious of. There are some that we are living out of that we're not even conscious of. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you a few more details in a minute. Uh, and the question that I want to, uh, to start with is how do we get an identity? Each of us have one or more identities that we live out of. Um, and, I, and usually identities begin in childhood through some very painful episodes in our life. Painful events, painful people. Now, I want to give you uh, as just sort of uh, some examples of some painful events in my childhood. These are not all the painful ones, but they, but they stand out to me uh, because they were formative in sort of morphing me into the kid I became in high school and the college student I was. Um, I became a Christian in the middle of my junior year at a retreat like this. Um, but even through, even over the last 45 years as a Christian, there's still some of the old identities that I adopted back when I was a kid that I still fight today, all these years later. So let me start off with just some, uh, some personal painful things. When I was in elementary school, junior high, and up to my sophomore year in high school, I was the shortest kid in my class. 
And when I mean class, I don't mean like the 30 of us in third grade. I mean like all the third graders or all the sixth graders in junior high or all the freshmen in high school. I finally kind of had a growth spurt my sophomore year. That was painful all the time to me. Uh, I had curly hair in a world where curly hair was not cool. And I remember at one point, uh, I think in junior high or high school, I learned how to iron my hair with my mother's iron and an ironing board. Now, I'm not saying I was smart. You know. <laughs> just, just, what, just what was, okay? Um, when, my, when, my, uh, wisdom, not my, when my real teeth came in after the baby teeth left, my two front teeth look like the right and left tackle, the starting left tackle for USC. They were large. And they pointed out like Bucky the squirrel, the chipmunk. And you know what? In junior high, that's not a cool look. When you're short and you got curly hair and buck teeth, it's just not happening for you. It's not a good thing. Uh, and I joke about it now, but can you sense something of what it was like to go to school for me every day? Um, when I was in sixth grade, I was 11 years old, and I played football. And my, one of my coaches was 6'4", and weighed about 240. He played college ball. And one, we, we'd practiced for about 45 minutes, and we all sat down, took a water break. And he looked over at me, and he said, had my helmet off, and he said, Gatchel, remember, I'm 11 years old. Gatchel, that's the biggest helmet I've ever seen in front of all the other guys on the team. He reached over and grabs this helmet. This massive guy puts it on, and it fits him. He said, how big is your head? Now, if you sum up some of the identity that I had in junior high, it would look like this. I looked at myself as a pumpkin on a toothpick. A pumpkin. A pumpkin head on a toothpick. A caricature with curly hair on top of the pumpkin and buck teeth instead of the pumpkin with the little teeth coming down, you know, that you carve out for Halloween. Um, when I was in sixth grade, uh, I got on the bus to go home. Now, I was in eighth grade on the bus. And eighth grade, where I lived, was the, the biggest year of junior high. So I, I was supposed to be like one of the top kids, you know, eighth graders. I got on the bus, and there was a, a, a group of bullies who were sixth graders at the back of the bus. And when I got on the bus, they started into the song of baby face. You got the cutest little baby face. And I was just mortified. I was humiliated. Shamed. I, I, you know, they didn't have Southwest commercials back there. But if they had, I would have been, want to get away? <laughs> I sat on that bench seat. And even though... Uh, my stop was about the last stop on the road, on, on the bus. I got off at the first stop and walked the rest of the way home and never took the bus home the rest of the year. Let me tell you one other little story. And, and it's a small story. It's a small, in some ways, a small pain. But for some reason, it was formative for me. Uh, I was in high school. I have a brother and sister and my mom and dad. We were at a really nice restaurant. China and, and crystal goblets and white tablecloth and candles. And somewhere 
uh, early in the meal, I reached for something, probably some butter in the table, and I, sp- I spilled my milk onto the white tablecloth. And my dad was sitting across from me, the round table, and he just glared at me, just glared, and said, I can't take you anywhere. Now, on the scale of personal pain, probably in this room, from a father, that's probably pretty small. But for some reason, that episode opened up something in my heart and some kind of wound happened. It was almost like an arrow hit and just stuck. Now, my dad, uh, we loved my dad because he was a fun guy and he was very successful. We just never saw him that much because he worked about 70 hours a week. That's one other little thing to sort of put into this mix. So as you're sitting here, you're thinking, I wonder... What, what, what did Seth's heart, what did his, his soul do with these painful events growing up? What kind of identities did he adopt, whether consciously or unconsciously? Now, we are going to look at four people with, with hopefully these same kind of glasses this weekend. The first one is Solomon. Let me say a few things about identity. And there's a place, if you want to jot down some of these notes, uh, because it helps us to understand something really complex if we can break it into pieces. In one sense, an identity is how you see yourself. That's one way we, we, we use the word identity, how we see ourself. But there's another kind of identity, uh, and that's how we want others to see us. And these are usually very different animals. There's at least two identities going on here. Third is there's a persona that comes out of us as we relate to people that's reflective of our identity at any given moment. Uh, It has a script, usually. It has a plot. Uh, It has facial expressions or a mask. There's a costume that we wear. It's almost like we're an actor on a stage. And I'll give you some of mine... uh, Uh, tomorrow in the morning when we talk about uh, this, when I was a a college student. Uh, Fourth, it is shaped by painful events and painful people. Or, excuse me, painful events, painful people, yes. And particularly when shame is involved. When shame is involved. Number five, our identities, whether we're aware of it or not, are purposeful. They serve a purpose, and they serve two large purposes, and they're, they're polar opposites of each other. The first is an identity serves to protect me from the threat of pain. And, and secondly, identity, hope, I hope to get something from it as I relate to you uh, and as I relate to my world, I hope to gain something for, call it joy, happiness, fulfillment. And I hope to get that through my persona as I'm relating in my world. And, I, and, it, and it's to protect me from pain. Uh, lastly, our identities that we adopt, whether we're aware of it or not, are anchored deep in your soul and in my soul. 
And we are not going to give those up without a fight. If you've done any thinking about this and you've tried to change some of your old identities, you're already aware this is harder than just going, wow, well, I'm a new person in Christ. All done. There's cognitive things in the scripture that help us with this. But that's just cognitive by itself is not going to dislodge old identities and be replaced with new ones. All right, let's look at Solomon as sort of a case study. Now, when I think about Solomon, when you think about Solomon, what's the, what word comes to mind? Somebody a little bit louder. Wisdom. All right, that's, that's what I was hoping somebody would say. And, um, and so if you know me, I like props. And so here's my, here's my wisdom prop. Okay, now let me ask you. I, I just had a girl's uh, face for this. I, didn't, I used to have a guy's and I lost it. So, but, so for you ladies, it's just a question to ponder. Is, is, there, is it fortuitous that I'm associating wisdom with a female? Accurate. <laughs> okay, so guys, you'll just have to bear with me on that. Wisdom. Okay, now... Um, David is on his deathbed. He's about to die. Uh, one of Solomon's brothers uh, usurps the throne. Bathsheba, who is Solomon's mother, has a panic attack. She runs to David and said, You promised me that my our son would be king. And David says, You're right. Solomon's king. Make it happen. They made it happen. And uh, in the first chapter of 2 Chronicles 1, there's a pretty cool story. Uh, uh, God is speaking to Solomon, or Solomon's speaking to God. Something's going on here. And, uh, and God says, ask me for anything. Kind of the magic genie, you know, three, three wishes. And so, so Solomon, this is what he says. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can rule this thy people that is so great? Now, that's a, that's a, sounds great, doesn't it? He's about to be king. He's probably about 23 years old. Exactly. 23 years old, uh, I, I suppose I'd be asking for wisdom if I was 23 years old and was suddenly president of the United States. Kind of the same thing. I wonder if he felt overwhelmed. I wonder if he felt fearful. He's following in some big shoes. His father, King David who had been wildly successful. The borders stretched to, the, to the, the farthest extent in Israel's history. It was a time of prosperity under David. David wore size 13 shoes. If I was Solomon, it looked like I was wearing my little baby booties compared. Well, so I, I guess, you know, praying a prayer like this is a good thing, but I wonder if there's something more going on in his prayer Perhaps. Uh, well, so we start with, you know, we, we, we think of Solomon. We think of, he wrote the book of Proverbs. Wrote the book of uh, Song of Solomon. Wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. When I was uh, a new Christian um, in college, I loved to go to the Bible and read. But some of the books I'd read, and I'd read a chapter, and I'd go, huh? I don't know what I read. 
And so my go-to is always to go back to Proverbs. I could read Proverbs and go, okay, this is good. Into Proverbs. And some of the best Bible studies that I did as a young Christian came from the book of Proverbs. Uh, I remember doing one study on the tongue and communication, and I was mortified by what I thought. I, I got a lot to change in how I communicate with people. I did a study on the wise man and the foolish man that was a life-changing study for me. And I discovered when I made lists of wise and fool that I bore a lot of the marks of the foolish person. That was a wake-up call to me. I did a study on laziness and slothfulness uh, that was also... Uh, Quite disturbing, quite convicting. Um, Proverbs starts, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. That men may know wisdom. Wisdom and instruction. Understand words of insight. Receive instruction in wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity. That prudence may be given to the simple. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. The wise man also may hear and increase in learning. And the man of understanding acquires skill. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, it's a great opening to the book. Love the book of Proverbs. But if you know the rest of Solomon's life, does that pose some questions for you? You go, what happened? Somewhere the train derailed and ended up at the bottom of the canyon. His life was a wreck. For the, for the last half of his adult life, he lived like a pagan did. What happened? How does that happen? And is it possible that that could happen to me? Is that it could happen to you? There's something to ponder. What's going on here? I wonder why wisdom was so important to Solomon. Was there something in addition to governing the people, was there something else he was hoping wisdom would do for him? One fellow said that there are always two reasons why we do important things. One is the right reason and one is the real reason. And I wonder if there's something more in Solomon's pursuit of wisdom than just wanting to govern well. Now, he also wrote the book of Song of Solomon. He also did this when he was young. Both these books were penned around 1014 B.C. Um, just for estimate purposes, about 23 years old. Uh, younger than a few of you, a little bit older than most of you, 23 years old. He's a king, got a new job, new career. He's a newlywed. And if you've read the book of Song of Solomon, you're thinking, man, this guy's a pretty sharp dude. Who wouldn't want to be married to that guy? Writes poetry to his wife. I tried to do that, but I never got past roses or red violets for blue. <laughs> uh, Mindy just said, that's okay. Said, yeah, not your gifting there. Um, but this guy not only wrote the poems, he sang them to her. That's a pretty good idea. Wonder why he did that. Wonder what's driving this Song of Solomon. Well, God has his purposes, obviously, and they're help, been helpful to millions of Christians down through the ages. But is there something, do you smell smoke? Knowing the end of the story? You smell that there's something not quite right here? Solomon, 23 years old. 
the golden boy of wisdom. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance, the bride says. My lovers to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My lovers to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. They're on their honeymoon. He says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. She replies, oh, how handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. Life-giving is the idea. The beams of our house are cedars. Our rafters are firs. Not just talking about a house, but the relationship that they have has beauty to it, has splendor to it, and has some strength to it. By the time you get to the book of Ecclesiastes, and by the time you get later on in in, uh, Solomon's reign, you discover he's had 300 wives and 700 concubines. What happened from Song of Solomon to that point? What was driving him? What things were driving him? Maybe that nobody saw. And maybe he didn't even see. Ecclesiastes 7, 28, he says, which my mind has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. What he's, trying, what he's saying here is, as he's lived his life all these years, he's tried to find one righteous person. He only found one guy he'd consider righteous. All these thousand women that he's been with, don't quite fill the cup. Something's still missing. Something's still hollow in his soul. Hey, what happened to this guy? Proverbs 27, 20, hell and destruction are never satisfied, never satisfied of the eyes of man. What happened in his marriage? Well, somewhere early along, a sobering reality hit him. And that is this beautiful woman that he married was not going to be the be-all, end-all of his search for happiness. And if that's the hope that you have when you get married, that is a sobering reality. He discovered this. But he still held out a hope that there was somebody. It just wasn't number one. Maybe her, number two. And when that didn't turn out, maybe number three, etc. What's driving him? Now we get to the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you've tried to read the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, the first few times I read it, I was so confused. I think, okay, well, here's a principle. And then he goes, no, that's not it. Oh, here's a principle. No, no, that, that's not it either. Anything, what happened? To the, what, what's this guy doing? How did this book end up in the canon of Scripture? And finally, I realized two important things about the book of Ecclesiastes. Proverbs and Song of Solomon were written when he was about 23 years old in the year 1017 B.C. The book of Ecclesiastes was written 37 years later, 977 B.C., almost as old as me about 60 years old. The second thing is that you don't read the book of Ecclesiastes like you read the book of Proverbs. You read the book of Ecclesiastes like you're reading your roommate's diary or your best friend's diary 
and they gave you permission. And it's a mess. Ups and downs, questions and answers, dead ends, things I thought I could count on. Couldn't count on that. In other words, somewhere in midlife, what he thought was going to make life work, the principles from Proverbs, the guidelines, the promises that he could, ma he could manage his life to get the life that he wanted, wasn't working. In our day, we call that a disillusioned Christian. Usually this happens in midlife. But sometimes it happens as early as college. Or a little bit later when you're out in the work world. Ecclesiastes. The managed life. Now, there's nothing wrong with managing your life. Nothing wrong with managing your school, managing your career, managing your relationships, your marriage, your children, your finance. Nothing wrong with managing. I'm not using it in that sense. I'm using the managed life in a very different sense. Something of this. I know what to do. I know the right principles. If I just do them, I will get the life I deserve. In other words, when I was a non-Christian, I thought I knew the principles to get the life I wanted, and I ran into a brick wall. That's what brought me to Christ at age 20. But when I was a young Christian, I thought, now I've got the answers right here. And I couldn't do it before, but now I'll get the life I want. Just watch me. And what, uh, what happens to us in midlife, or sometimes earlier, is you run into the same wall. And God allows you to walk in that same wall. Let's look at the book at Ecclesiastes. In chapter 2, Solomon will talk about something that gave promise would fill his soul, and it didn't deliver. Promise didn't deliver. Promise didn't deliver. I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Number one, first one, pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Now, already you think, wait a minute. This doesn't sound like the guy of Proverbs. And it doesn't sound like the guy that loved God in, in the book of Song of Solomon. Something's different. There's a difference between what he espoused and what was really in his heart. Or as Harold says, it's not, that we, it's not that he didn't love God, it's just that he loved the good life a little bit more. And rather than loving God, he's going to use God and the principles of God to get the good life. And the way he's going to do it is to manage the wisdom, principles of God to do it. Verse 2, but behold, all this was vanity. It didn't work, it was emptying is the word. Verse 2, I said of laughter, went to the comedy club. It is mad, madness is the idea, and of pleasure, what use is it? Number three, I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, or dos equis. Sorry about that. That's what happens if you drink too much right there. Oh. I need a 
Aaron, can you get me a prop manager for in the morning? <laughs> my, I searched my mind with how to cheer my body with wine. Now, look at the rest of this verse. Very important. Very important. I searched my mind how to cheer my body with wine. My mind's still guiding me with wisdom. Now, think about this. Is that true? After reading verse 1, 2, and 3, if your roommate started living verse 1, 2, and 3, would you call that wisdom? No, of course not. It's foolishness. It's folly. It's like you said, it's emptiness, vanity. And yet, to Solomon, it appears to him, wrongfully, it appears to him that he's still trying to do the principles of Scripture to get the life he wants. He's wrong. Or more accurately, he's deceived himself. I can get closer to the, to the cliff without falling off. I, I know. I know the dangers. Verse 3b, to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Number four, I made great works, great builder, big business. And he gives some examples. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Number five, I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. Uh, you might think of him here as a CEO, running a corporation with lots of people under him. A sense of power and control, getting things done, accomplishment, success. Number six, I also had great possessions of herds as a rancher and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Number seven, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Solomon was not just a Fortune 500 guy. He was a Fortune 1 guy. <laughs> Yet that didn't do it. Number eight, I got singers, both men and women. Hollywood. Hollywood. Entertainment. And number nine, many concubines, man's delight, or so he thought. So he hoped. Verse 9, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Number 10, became great fame. Well known. Look at all I've done. I'm important. Also, notice the next part of this verse again. He repeats. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Had it? Not on your life. It flew out the door. But it seems to him like it's still there. Everybody else around him could tell it was gone. Except him. And nobody was going to tell him he was any different than he was when he was younger. Now, this should scare the bejabbers out of you and me. 
You think about all that Solomon had at his disposal when he was young. The heritage he had living with King David. And this train wreck could happen. It shouldn't surprise me that I deal with this stuff even at this age. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was my reward for my toil. Now, what's going on inside of him? He's still holding on to wisdom. And though wisdom is supposed to lead him in the direction of a God-centered life, where God is the most important thing in his life, and loving God like we just sang about a few minutes ago, and being his child, his kid, living for him, serving him, is supposed to be the deepest reality in my life. It's almost there. But there's something else that takes precedent. It's just a little deeper than that. And that's to get the good life. And the way to do it is to take the things of God and make sure you've dotted all your I's and crossed your T's and just wait for all the goodness to roll in. And God says, no, 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 no. I am not going to let you do that. You can't do that, but you are going to run into some brick walls of my making to dislodge what's going on. We call this trouble and suffering and trials. Uh, on the back of your handout, let me do a couple, couple little wrap-ups on the book of Ecclesiastes. There are five toils that he describes uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes that he tried to make life work, to get the good life, that he tried to manage the principles of God to get the good life. The first one is wisdom we talked about. Hopefully if I do the principles... I do A, I get B. Some kind of guarantee there. God's obligated. Doesn't he see that I'm sincere? Doesn't he see how hard I've worked? Doesn't he see how much I've served? And all the verses that I've, I've memorized and I've, I've shared with people. Why am I empty? Why am I still, still doing fear? What's wrong with me? The good life is more important than the God-centered life still. And that should not surprise us. Number two, ethics, the second ethics. Tell me the good thing to do. Tell me the right thing to do. If I do the good thing, if I do the right thing, surely God will give me the life I want. And God said, no, 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 no. Ethics is a good thing, but not for that purpose. Not, not ultimately. The third one is control or power. Having my way, getting what I want done. Soren Kierkegaard uh, illustrated this. He said, if, if you have a servant uh, at your home and, and you ask the servant to bring you a cup of water, if the servant instead brings you a glass of wine, it's likely that you will be angry with the servant. How come? Because it's not about quenching the thirst. It's about the feeling of, I spoke. And it happened. Control. We love control. 
Number four, pleasure. Pleasure starts out with what I'm going to gain to feel fulfilled. And then over time, pleasure morphs into wanes. And as it wanes, it now serves a lesser purpose to numb or as a narcotic to numb the emptiness and the pain of my life. Number five, false religions. This is what uh, happened to Solomon. He, he married all these foreign wives. And the scripture says, don't do that. They'll take you away from God. And there's something inside of Solomon that says, I don't care anymore. I'm going to find some way to get the life that I want and that I deserve. I've managed well. Don't tell me I can't do this. And he did. Why false religions? I guess he wanted to cover all his bases. Like mythology. The Greek gods, the Roman gods. Appease them all. I'll get the good life. Not too much different. Then there's a phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes that I love. It's called life under the sun. And he's talking about meaning the life here on planet earth, the fallen world that we live in. And he draws two conclusions uh, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes that I want to highlight. Conclusion number one is the managed life will not satisfy. The managed life will not satisfy. As I'm using the word managed life, the, the term, it won't satisfy. Ecclesiastes 2, I considered all that my hands had done, all the toil I had spent doing it. Behold, all was vanity, a striving after when there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Under the sun means, in reality, instead of living a God-centered life, in reality, I lived a little bit deeper, a man-centered life. The good life was more important. Now, you couldn't pin him down on that, maybe until later on in life. He would have told you straight to your face, I'm a God-centered guy. I love God. Don't tell me I'm a fool. I know wisdom. But he was deceived. And he was wrong. Conclusion number two has to do with meaning. Life is meaningful when our story is a servant of God's story instead of God's story being a servant of my story. Meaning comes when my story is a servant of God's greater story instead of expecting God's story to be a servant of my story. The managed life. God, look at all I've done. Look at all the time I've spent in ministry. Look at all the time I've spent with people. Look how I've served you. Look at the things I've sacrificed. Why, why hasn't it come together like it should? Why are some of my dreams still unfulfilled? Why do I wake up so many mornings still empty? Even in, a, even in a very good marriage, there are times where I still feel lonely. Why is that? Are, are there some identities at work? Still. Some of which I'm aware of, and some I still may not be aware of. 
Well, we've looked at one tonight, the managed life. To get the good life. Let's pray together. Father, I guess if Solomon was here at age 23, he'd probably be, he'd be sitting here dutifully taking notes with an unspoken, maybe unconscious hope that now he has the resources to get the life he wants. And he would set his hope on a lesser hope and an uncertain hope than a God-centered life where my story is wrapped around God's story. His hope would be centered on using your story to make his story come together and be fulfilled and effective and successful and important and loved and esteemed. Maybe like his father. Maybe not like the 23-year-old kid that his, that David's advisors might think he is. What does he know? He's only 23. Father, for all of us, at whatever age we are, um, this should not surprise us when we see this, the good life, the managed life, raise its ugly head every day. It's not going to go away until we're in heaven. Every day, we will battle this ugly thing. We'll have to face it down. We'll have to take out our sword and say no to the flesh, no to the old life, no to the good life, and yes to it, to the, to the God-centered life wrapped around your story. That does not come naturally to any of us. But at least would you, in our minds, our conscience, conscious, make us aware of these two things and help us to consciously choose the God-centered life as the most important thing for which we aspire. Help us to see these things. Apart from you, we have no hope, none, of seeing these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.